All right, well, let me welcome everybody who's worshiping with us at uh, all of our Savannah and Compassion Christian campuses today. For those of you who are here in the room at Henderson, we're glad to see you. And for all of you who are watching on the web, uh, we're glad you could join us as well. I don't know if you appreciate this or not, uh, but man, last year, over 10,000 people a month uh, logged on to our messages to, to watch these messages on the web. Uh, and that's like 30% of the people who are part of our ministry. And so it's kind of an amazing thing. And whether you're military or a missionary or a college student or uh, a friend of Savannah Christian, man, we're glad to have you joining us on the web today. Uh, and we hope you'll be blessed by this exploration of God's word and what it has to say uh, about the complicated world of relationships. Now, we're calling this series, It's Complicated, because, brother, relationships are complicated. And today is You Ask For It Today. You Ask For It Day. Uh, for the last three weeks, you've been sending us in questions about just a menu of relationship issues. And we're going to try to answer some of those questions this week and next. Now, as I worked through some of your questions, some of them had absolutely nothing to do with relationships. I got a question about evolution and the dinosaurs. Uh, maybe there's a love affair with Barney or something like that. I don't know, man. Where does that fit in the Bible? The answer is the dinosaurs uh, thrived during the time of the Garden of Eden. They were killed off by the Great Flood. That's the answer, but that's not the kind of question we're going after today. Today we're talking about relationships, and your questions basically fell into three broad categories, single people questions, uh, married people questions, and parenting questions, and that's how we're going to go at this today. By the way, did you hear about the single guy who was diagnosed with a rare disease? His doctor told him, man, I hate to be the one to break bad news to you, but you've got like six months to live. And he said, six months? Doc, what should I do? He said, I don't know what you should do, but I tell you, if I was you, here's what I would do. Uh, I would leave Savannah, and I would move to Kansas. I would try to find a widow with 12 kids and marry her. I'd buy a hog farm with four, 500 hogs on it, and that's what I do for a living. And on the side, I'd try to find a really small legalistic church and ask them if I could be their minister. And the guy said, if I did that, do you think God would be impressed and he would heal me? He said, no, but it would be the longest six months of your life, man. <laughs> now, now, now friend, uh, single friends... <laughs> We know that there are some frustrations that come along with a single life. That is not the solution, all right? Now, let's talk about some single people issues. Uh, we've got a lot of questions from single people in our church. And, man, I'm so glad to hear from you. Uh, I love you. Uh, three of the people in our, uh, who have had the biggest influence on my life were single. The Lord Jesus, the Apostle Paul, and my mom uh, was a single mom for most of my life. Uh, and so, friends, uh, we love single people. We're so glad you're here. We thank God for the strength, honestly. Uh, that you add to our ministry. You make our church better and stronger because you're here. But single people have some unique challenges, so let's look at some of your questions. First of all, what do you do about high-maintenance friendships that suck the life out of you? Now, that is a great question. In fact, we thought about this year doing a series of messages called How to Love a Vampire. <laughs> Loving the people who suck the life out of you, all right? <laughs> now, we're not going to do that, but we thought about it, Okay. Now, if you, uh, you know, if that's your question, let me tell you what the short answer to that is. You need to set some boundaries and you need to speak the truth in love. Now, if you have lots of high maintenance friends or, or you struggle with codependency yourself, I want to recommend a book for you to read. It was written by Dr. Henry, Henry Cloud. This is a classic book and it's entitled Boundaries. Uh, this is a classic book on setting boundaries that just keep people from running over you all the time. However, if you're going to love people like Jesus did, you are going to have some high maintenance people in your life. Amen. Only a narcissistic person just calls all the people out of their life except the people who just work for them. So here's a strategy I want to recommend for you as you're learning to draw boundaries in your life. 
I was first exposed to this when I read Gordon McDonald's book, Ordering Your Private World. If you haven't read this book yet, you're really behind. You need to get it. You need to read it. But in this book, he says there are three kinds of people in all of our lives. Uh, there are VDPs, which are very draining people. Uh, we all have some of these people in our lives. Some of them are high maintenance folk that we know and love. Some of them are people who are really precious to us. Man, if you're a parent and you have three kids all under the age of seven, you are probably exhausted by the constant needs of some very precious but very draining little people. I kept three grandkids this past weekend, and Lord knows I was so glad to see their parents when they got home. I'm telling you, I love it, but that's a young man's game, amen? Wow. Now, serving those kind of folks is a good thing, but it's a draining thing as well. Uh, VNPs are very nice people. Uh, we talked about this last week. Uh, we all have friendly people who are not necessarily friends to us. Uh, we know them. We're friendly to them. We serve them in the name of Jesus, but you can't really count on them for any help. And then there are VIPs in all of our lives. There are very inspiring people. Man, these are the people who just build you up. They encourage you. They bring a measure of joy and insight into your life. Listen, these folks, they, they jack you up. Now, I want you to think of yourself as a battery. And think of all of these three categories of people as either people who take juice off of you or people who give you a charge. Now, VDPs, drop your voltage. And that's okay. Uh, Jesus served people like that all the time, cost him every time he served anybody, cost you any time you serve anybody, that's the way it should be. The VNPs, the very nice people, there's no charge there at all. Uh, they don't drain you and they don't charge you up either. But the VIPs, <coughs> those are people who do give you a charge and they pump you up. Now here's the question. Where are you spending most of your time? Now you ask most people where they're spending time and they're spending most of their time solving problems for the draining people and rubbing shoulders with the nice people, both of whom are taking a charge off of them, but they're not intentionally spending time with the VIPs, the inspiring people who actually build their energy up. And so what I want to encourage you to do while you're drawing some boundaries is to identify some VIPs, some very inspiring people and start investing, invest time with them. And there are hundreds of opportunities for that here at our church. And listen, all the other VIPs in this, in this room right now need you. We need you to encourage us as we encourage you and as we all serve Jesus together. So my answer to that question is draw some boundaries, sure. But I want to encourage you to start investing in encouraging relationships. You can do it at MOPS if you're a mother of preschoolers, life groups, ministry teams. Anywhere you connect with VIPs, it'll bless you and charge you up. Now, the next group of questions from single people had to do with dating, uh, finding your soulmate, sexual boundaries in dating. Uh, how do you know when you found the right one? Uh, and so let's dig into some of those questions because they're really important. Number two, what if I fall in love with somebody who does not share my faith? Friends, right there is the question that will have the biggest impact on your future happiness as a married person. Friends, in the Bible, one of the wisest single men in the world actually addresses that question specifically. The Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 6, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. What partnership has righteousness with lawlessness or what has fellowship, what fellowship has light with darkness? Now, this is probably the most underappreciated verse in the Bible, especially to single people, because the message is so constricting. I mean, if you're a follower of Jesus, it says, do not give your heart to, do not fall in love with, do not for any reason marry a person who is not also a follower of Jesus. Simply put, if you're a follower of Jesus, the right person for you is going to be another follower of Jesus and only another follower of Jesus. 
Now, many single people hate this verse. You know why? Because it narrows the playing field. I mean, they're looking around in church, looking around their small group, looking around the youth group, and they don't really see anybody they want to date. And they're thinking, Cam, dude, it's hard enough just to find somebody who is sane and healthy. I mean, that's hard enough. Now you're going to narrow the field to only those sane, healthy people who love the Lord? Wow. But single people, this is the counsel and coaching of the God who loves you. You know that word yoke, don't be unequally yoked, is a farm analogy that everybody back in the day would have understood. Man, when you put two creatures into a yoke to pull a load together, to pull that wagon, to do that work together, you want a synergy of a beautifully balanced team. And I'm not just talking about emotionally and intellectually, but spiritually as well. And man, if you marry somebody who doesn't share your faith, life is going to be harder for you. Now, if you're already married to an unbeliever, or if you came to Christ and your spouse hadn't come to Christ yet, there's a whole different set of instructions for you. I'll get to that in a minute. But if you're a single believer, you should not even consider getting into a serious relationship, much less marrying somebody who doesn't share your faith. Now, in his great book, Fit to be Tied, and if you haven't read this yet and you're single, dude, get this book. Bill Hybels gives us four reasons to only date a fellow believer. Number one, if you're dating another believer, you can share the same treasure. You both love the same thing the most. You both love the Lord. He's number one for both of you. Listen, that unites you in amazing ways. And if not, the most important thing in the world to you will be nothing to them. And the longer you're married, the more difference that will make. If you marry a believer, you can build from the same blueprint. I mean, man, you can build your life and your marriage and your family. You can partner and parent and manage money according to the same set of instructions from God's word. You both believe in it. It works, man. In addition, you can access the same strength. Listen, if you're both believers, you can draw on the same power, seek the same strength that comes from God's word and God's Holy Spirit. You know, Sarah and I had three boys and then we lost two babies. And we believe those children are in heaven. We believe that my dad and her dad have already found those kids, already started to spoil them. That's their job. Hope they are. We're looking more to seeing them ourselves when we get to heaven. But I'm telling you, when we lost those two babies, that was tough sledding for us. Do I have to tell you how thankful I am? That when we lost those children, my Sarah didn't comfort herself with pills or chemicals or bottles or in the bed of a stranger. How thankful I am that together we could turn to our Lord for strength. We could pray to our Lord together. And I'm telling you, if you marry an unbeliever, you won't have that. You won't have that. If you marry a fellow believer, you can live by the same values. Man, when you marry somebody who believes like you do, you got this common set of values that are based on the wisdom of God's word. And you can both agree on those things and honor those things together in a day and in a culture like ours where everything is up for grabs. Man, can you imagine the pain of being married to somebody who not only disagrees with you on major issues, but mocks you, mocks your commitment to those things in front of your kids undermines you at every turn. And don't tell me that ain't happening in our church. Happens every day. Some of y'all are feeling that pain right now. Friends, 2 Corinthians 6.14 is not discrimination against unbelievers. It is the protective love of a sovereign God. It is his practical attempt to ensure that you will be able to enjoy an abundant life and max it out in your marriage. He knows. He's trying to help. Here's another single people question. How do I know it's the right person? Well, now, friend, you're going to think this is crazy, but 
to know when you have met the right person, you need to become an expert on two things. You need to become an expert on what God's word says about who you're going to marry and how he created you. You need to become an expert on those things because when you're looking for the love of your life, you're looking for somebody that you can become one with. You know, the, the, the proto passage on how to build a great marriage is in Genesis chapter two. It's on page two of the Bible, Genesis 2:24. Let's read this all together like lions. Y'all ready? Here we go. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. Everybody say one. one, one flesh. So the question you need to answer if you're single is this, what kind of person can you become one with? What kind of person can you become one with? What kind of personality and temperament are you drawn to? Man, what kind of values uh, do you have? What kind of character do you expect in your spouse? What kind of roles do you expect to play in that relationship? What kind of energy level, man? What kind of ambition level do you want in your spouse? What about the spiritual commitment of that person? Dude, when you get that and you have peace about all that, you'll probably be looking at the right one. And if you negotiate, you will regret. You'll regret. Cam, how do I set boundaries in dating? Well, the short version is read the Bible, do what it says. Rather than doing what you feel, doing what your appetites are trying to drag you into, doing what you, you know everybody else is doing. You know what my mama told me? She said, when you go out on a date, you take this Bible, you put it right there between you and the girl. And so if you look over her and she looks too good, you've got to climb over Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John to get your hands on her. <laughs> That's not very good advice because I'm a real good climber. I'll tell you what I told my boys, same thing I told yours and all your kids at every church camp I've ever been to. You need to draw that line for yourself in the name of Jesus and your own life. And here's the line you need to draw when it comes to physical contact when you're dating somebody. Nothing below the neck. Don't lay down. Don't take anything off. Let me repeat. Nothing below the neck. Don't lay down. Don't take anybody anything off. All together now. Nothing below the neck. Don't lay down. Don't take anything off. I mean, not an ear bob, not a shoe, not a flip-flop. Don't take nothing off. I wish somebody I respected had been that frank with me when I was in the seventh grade because I love the Lord. But I, I didn't have that firewall, you know, where some wise man had looked me in the eyes and said, Now, son, you're never going to see a beautiful woman you don't want to touch. And here's the way you need to live if you want to honor the Lord. I wish somebody had been that frank with me. That's why I've been that frank with your kids. That's why I'm being that frank with you. Because if you cross these lines, I mean, come on, man. Haven't you got a a woman friend somewhere? And you just look at her and think, how did that bozo get you to marry him? This guy is a chump. How in the world did that man get you to marry? Oh, I know. I know what it is. Y'all are sleeping together, right? And then you look at this guy and think, how did you get married to this vapid knucklehead? Oh, I know what it is. You were sleeping together, right? Right? Because sex makes you stupid. Can I get an amen? You know it does, man. Sex makes you stupid when you're single. I got a lot of other questions like, how do I say... I'm going to get fired over this one right here. <laughs> how do you get sexually pure? How do you stay sexually pure after you're engaged? Answer, wear your mother's underwear. <laughs> it's the truth, man. 
you start wearing your mama's underwear, you ain't taking them pants off of nobody. You know what I'm saying? I'm just saying. Now, what I really mean is you want to have a long, a long courtship and a short engagement. You know what I mean? Take a long time to see if that's the one. And once you know that's the one, boom, get married, man. Because I'll tell you, that pressure gets tough. Now, we've got to move on. But here's a resource that I know, I know this will help you if you're a single person. I wrote this for you. We have a message that Mickey's got at the bookstore called Choosing the Love of Your Life. If you have never been married or you are single because of divorce, you need to listen to this message that I wrote for you. It is from God's word. You need to hear it. You need to follow it. Mickey's got a copy for you at the source right now on every campus at the end of this service. Grab it. Because if you will follow the wisdom of God's word, you will not be asking the top three married people questions that I was asked this time. We got some married people questions here. By the way, did you hear about the caretaker in the cemetery? Uh, he was just doing his job, and he looked over at this woman, and she was kneeling in front of a tombstone. I mean, just wailing, weeping, wailing. Why did you leave? Why did you have to go? Why did you go? And he was so, you know, moved by that that he went over and just patted her on the shoulder and said, Ma'am, I'm, I'm so moved by your grief. You must have really loved your husband. She said, That ain't my husband. That's his ex-wife. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> Slowly you get it, all right? All I mean to say is, if you think being single is complicated, marriage is real complicated, amen? Amen. You know it is. Listen, I got the three most common questions I got from married people had to do with very complicated relational breakdowns. And of course, some of the questions I got were really simple. My spouse doesn't want to have sex with me. Is that normal? No, that is not normal. That is not healthy. That is not godly unless there's some kind of you know, medical complication and maybe that's different. But if you are just not attentive to your spouse's sexual desires, that actually violates the wisdom that leads to great marriages from the Bible. Sarah and I are actually going to spend a whole session on this issue at our marriage retreat this weekend. But again, the Apostle Paul, who was led by the Holy Spirit to write more about marriage, healthy marriages than any other writer in the Bible says... The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Consequently, do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourself to prayer. Maybe they're sick and need to be praying for healing. Maybe they're fasting over some issue and fasting from, you know, sexual involvement for a little while. But then he says, come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Friends, This right here is honestly, frankly, why all the surveys show that the most sex and the best sex that's enjoyed in America is by evangelical Christians just like me and you. You know why? Because we are coached by God not to be selfish people. Not to be self-centered, but to be sexually generous. And friends, sexual generosity leads to great marriages. Sexual stinginess is like burning your own house down. They'll make a lick of sense. Here's another one. <clears throat> what do I do about my obnoxious mother-in-law? Now, really, <laughs> really, uh, you know, I had a great mother-in-law. I love my mother-in-law. And, and I wish I had time to talk about this. Because, you know, the mother of a boy is the loneliest person in the relational world. And we'll talk about that at the marriage retreat sometime if you want to hear about it. But the primary passage on marriage in the Bible appears for the very first time on page 2. We read it just a few minutes ago. 
But then Jesus reaffirms this principle in Matthew chapter 19. It is the definition of God and his son Jesus on what marriage looks like. It is a relationship between a man and a woman, period. Look at verse 4. Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them, God's creation was male and female, and said, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Those are the words of Jesus Quoting from the book of Genesis. Now, when you marry, your mother, let's talk about your mama. Your mother is not supposed to meddle in your marriage unless she sees you doing something foolish. And she's trying to step in to protect you and your spouse and your and her grandchildren. And that happens sometime too, doesn't it? Everybody say, "Uh uh-huh. You know it does. But the bottom line is, she's your mama. You deal with her. Right? I mean, your wife shouldn't have to deal with your mother. Your husband shouldn't have to deal with your mother. If she's crossing the line, you talk to her. I ain't talking to her. Well, you need to talk to her. It's your mama. Don't leave that for your spouse to do. Then the questions get a little bit more complicated. What if I'm married to an unbeliever and I'm just miserable? Do I need to stay with them or would it just honor the Lord better if I divorce them? Great question. Let me rephrase that. If you're a follower of Jesus, you get to stay with them. Say it with me, everybody. If you're a follower of Jesus, you get to stay with them. Man, whether you are a believer who ignored God's word and you married an unbeliever just out of rebellion, or whether neither one of you were believers at the time and then you came to faith and your spouse did not, listen, it's important for you to love them. Love that unbelieving spouse. Stay with them. One of Jesus' best friends, the apostle Peter, said, Likewise, wives... Be subject to your own husband so that even if some do not obey the word. What's he talking about? An unbelieving husband. They may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. What? That that unbelieving husband will think, how in God's world can her loving another man make Jesus, make her be more loving to me? That's how robust your love for God and your love for your spouse should be. Then in 1 Corinthians 7, 12... Paul flips the whole thing the other way and says, hey, if a brother's got an unbelieving wife, he shouldn't divorce her. He should he should love her uh, and and bless her because there's a blessing that will come from God through that believer into that unbeliever's life. Peter and Paul are both saying the same thing. Look, if you have an unbelieving spouse, there is a testimony to the love of Jesus in your home as long as you're in your home. So just the fact that they're not believers is no grounds for divorce. Don't you love lost people, especially the one that you're married to? In fact, if you leave them, a spiritual light will go out of their life and out of your family that might have led them to Jesus. Of course, that brings us up to the next question. What does the Bible say about divorce? And I know just broaching this subject is causing some of you to get uncomfortable right now because you have felt the sense of rejection and failure that so often accompanies divorce. Uh, and you're here in church and you're thinking, wow, man, I hope nobody finds out. And I don't know if they'll love me if they find out. And, and can I just tell you, we love you. And you're among friends here today and we're glad you're here. So let's talk about what does Jesus say about divorce and remarriage. Let's learn something that we will operationalize in our lives for the rest of our lives. Because I'll tell you, there are a lot of questions about this out in our church family. First of all, Jesus does not encourage anyone to divorce in any situation. Jesus does not encourage anyone to divorce in any situation, but we are allowed to do so 
in certain circumstances because of the hardness of heart. In Matthew 19, verse 8, Jesus said, he, Jesus, uh, said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the very beginning, it was not so. And we've already quoted how it was in the very beginning two times so far in this message. Jesus says, I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and then marries another commits adultery. That verse right there has caused a lot of angst and heartbreak in a lot of our lives. A lady uh, wrote in and said, will I go to hell? Because I had a Bible that was a, a divorce that wasn't a biblical divorce. Well, not for that. I mean, you're not saved by works. You're not lost by works. You, you're saved by faith in Jesus, right? So, I mean, if you go through a divorce, that's a horrible thing. But if your faith is in Jesus, you're not going to be lost because you had a relational breakdown. But, but we do need to acknowledge that it is hardness of heart that destroys marriages. Even so, the scripture is clear that forgiveness and reconciliation... Always bring God the most honor and bring you the most blessing. Now, if you've been through a couple divorces, you know divorce doesn't solve a lot of problems. Solves a couple, but it creates a bunch too. Jesus allows it because of the hardness of some people's hearts. You know, there are people that would just lie and lie and cheat and cheat and abuse and abuse until, until divorce is the only way to stop their insanity. So what are the biblical grounds for divorce? Well, we just read what what Jesus said. Jesus said divorce is allowed because of sexual immorality. Now, friends, this is a reference to sexual sin. Any involvement outside of the marriage of a man or woman is sexual sin. Uh, High school kids hooking up on a date. College students, single people living together. Men and men sleeping together. Women and women sleeping together. Sexual immorality. Any sexual activity outside of the marriage of a man and a woman. And God's view is sexual immorality. And, and, but that's not the only grounds for divorce. Divorce is also allowed for desertion. You know, in 1 Corinthians 7.15, Paul says, If the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved, is no longer bound to that relationship. Uh, but God has called you to peace. You know, Jesus said a man shall leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. This desertion, this abandonment is a failure to stay united. It's a failure to stay loyal. Now, Paul here refers to unbelievers. He says, if you're married to an unbeliever and they choose to abandon you, uh, then you're free to remarry. But this gets a little bit more complicated because sometimes you may have a person who claims to be a believer, but gives absolutely no evidence in their life to validate that claim. And you know, the Bible talks about that as well. Paul says in 1 Timothy 5, 8, if anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially for members of his own household, I mean, think about deadbeat dads, people who don't take care of their kids. They have denied the faith and are worse than an unbeliever. In other words, there may be people who have shown by their lives that they are not believers and not followers of Jesus, regardless of what they may say. Now, I think abandonment may be broader than just waking up one morning and they're gone. I believe it could possibly include things like repetitive, defiant, unrepentant, physical abuse. And I tell all my premarital couples, physical abuse between spouses is absolutely unacceptable. The first time it happens, call the police. If you don't have the courage to call the police, call me. I'll call the cops for you. Because if you call the police the first time, probably won't ever happen again. If you don't call the cops, it'll never stop. 
till somebody gets hurt really bad or killed. So the biblical grounds for divorce are not, well, you know, we're just growing in different directions, pastor. I mean, I'm just not happy anymore. <laughs> you know, people change, man. I mean, look at all that weight he gained. She ain't working anymore. No. Sexual immorality, abandonment are the two grounds for divorce. Otherwise, man, you need to work it out. Because if you don't work it out, it's going to be remarriage, divorce, remarriage, divorce, remarriage, divorce. And I mean, a trail of dysfunction is going to, it's inevitable. So we've got to work it out. Now, friends, <clears throat> even though divorce is allowed, if you can forgive and reconcile, I'm telling you as a pastor who has seen this a thousand times, you will be much better off if you can forgive and reconcile. You'll be much better off than you think you will while you're in the middle of the hurricane and you're hurting so bad. But we'll get to that. Number six, when does Jesus approve of a divorced person remarrying? This is really important. Uh, you know, this is, this is where it's really important to understand how to study the Bible. Because what you can't do with the Bible on an issue like this is take one verse and then ignore everything else the Bible says on that topic. And remember, Jesus forbade remarriage after an unbiblical divorce so that there would be a motivation to stay in the relationship and fight for your marriage and, and humble yourself and forgive and, and seek to reconcile. You know, to keep us from just, you know, dump and run and dump and run and dump and run from marriage to marriage, leaving dysfunction everywhere in your wake. So Jesus says, only if there's sexual immorality is there grounds for divorce. But then Paul, Paul comes back and says, well, you're no longer bound and you can remarry if that spouse abandons you. And apparently the New Testament church thought that abandonment by an unbeliever was tantamount to sexual immorality. Now, because you have a pastor who loves you, I have sifted through the entire Bible and I have identified the circumstances in which a previously married believer has approval from Jesus to remarry. And if you have any questions about what I'm about to say, you just call and ask Jim Boland. (laughs) (laughs) And he will take care of you because let me tell you, Jim is the guy who's going to tell you whether you can get married at our church or not. And, and it's going to be based on these biblical principles that we're going to talk about right now. Okay. Number one, your former spouse is deceased. You are free to marry, but they must be a follower of Jesus. If you are a follower of Jesus, you have been commanded by your Lord to fo- marry only a fo- Better be single. Better to serve the Lord single than marry an unbeliever. Now, that's not, that's not a throw off on the unbelievers. It's, it's just obedience to our Lord. Number two. Your divorce occurred prior to your conversion to Jesus. If you had a divorce back in the day when you weren't a believer, and then you give your life to Christ, hey, uh, behold, uh, all things have become new. Amen? Uh, your divorce was caused by sexual immorality of your spouse. Jesus says you're, you're free to remarry. Uh, if you were deserted by an unbelieving spouse, Paul says you have the freedom to remarry. You don't have to, but you have the freedom to do so. Your spouse initiated the divorce, and they have remarried. Which means that maybe it wasn't a biblical grounds for divorce, but man, now they've remarried. They're having sex with somebody else. Their sex with the new spouse has crushed the covenant that you and they made. Your marriage to them is over because they married to somebody else. Your divorce is caused by your sexual immorality. And you are repentant. And your spouse has since married, remarried. So reconciliation is no longer possible. The person you cheated on has now married somebody else. You cannot be reconciled to them. And so I believe that you're free to remarry if you are repentant. Now, friends, 
If you don't fit on that grid and you've been divorced and remarried as a believer, and you're like that lady who's asked me, hey, am I going to go to hell because I got an unbiblical divorce and remarried? Uh, I want you to know we love you and we're thankful for you. But you need to repent. You need to ask Jesus to forgive you of that relational sin and move forward. Maybe it was out of ignorance. Maybe you didn't know. Or maybe it was just high-handed sin. I'm doing what I want to do. Nobody tells me what to do. But you know, 1 John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. I think there are probably people who walk into this church all the time and, you know, have a heavy spirit because of guilt from something they should have been forgiven of a long time ago. They've just been too proud to admit that they committed a sin and to ask for forgiveness. The beautiful thing about Jesus is that he takes us where we are right now. And rather than obsess about the past, he wants to forgive you in the present and walk with you into the future. Now, friends, this brings me to the next big married people question. Why is it so hard to forgive and trust again after sexual immorality? I mean, after your spouse has cheated on you. Why is it so hard to forgive and then trust again? (laughs) What a great question. What a great question. Here you got somebody who wants to forgive, but they're just struggling, man. It's struggling. Well, let me say two or three things about that. Forgiveness is the hardest and most expensive gift you will ever give or receive. Listen, forgiving our friends required Jesus to go to the cross and suffer and die. And we should not be surprised if forgiveness, forgiving other people, requires quite a bit of suffering for us. Guys, forgiveness is hard. Forgiveness is releasing your right to hold this against somebody. That's a big deal. That's a big gift. Forgiveness is also a process. You know, when somebody betrays you, somebody cheats on you, you're going to deal with a death. That's what my wife told me. I'll never have to divorce you because dead men don't have to be divorced. You cheat, cheat on me, you'll be dead as a hammer. And I, you know what? There's a lot of truth to that. But I'll tell you what, there is, when somebody cheats on you, there's a death. There's a death of trust. There's a death of a dream that we made these vows and we were going to keep them and this would never happen in our marriage and now it has. And you need to grieve that. You need to grieve it. You know, there are five stages of grief. And I think to forgive and then have peace. I mean, you've got to work through all five. There's a shock. This can't be happening. There's anger. And then depression. And then bargaining. All right, if you will promise to do this and this and this, then we'll we'll take these steps. And then finally, acceptance. And I can't tell you how many people I've remarried here at our church who, you know, have gone through divorce and they've gone through the process and the counseling and all of that. Now they've they've remarried to each other and it's a beautiful thing. But let me tell you, very often after all that stuff, the marriage is stronger in the the future than it could ever have been in the past. But friends, that forgiveness and trust takes time. It takes time. You know, trust is like a picket fence uh, around your relationship. It's a beautiful thing when you think about it. Trust defines who's in the relationship, who's in, who's out, protects everybody, keeps the dogs out. Amazing thing, trust. I, you know, but I tell you, if you break trust, it's like that whole fence falls at one time. Every stick falls at the same time. And you can rebuild it. You can rebuild trust. It's just one stick after another. One trustworthiness, trustworthiness. Trustworthiness. I tell people who broke trust, who cheated on their spouse, don't expect anybody in your family to believe a word you say for two years. I won't. 
I won't believe a word you say until you've been trustworthy 5,000 times. You know what that is? 10 times a day for a couple of years. And they go, well, that's a lot. I said, you did this. You did this. You fix it by being humble and faithful and trustworthy and patient with everybody in your family who is struggling to give you a gift you will never deserve, but you may receive because they love you. Okay, that's all the time we got. <clears throat> There's a bunch of other questions about parenting issues. We're going to devote a whole message to that next week, uh, and that's going to be fun. By the way, did you hear about the dad <laughs> whose daughter was going to get married to this graduate student? And so they bring the boy over to meet the dad and that, and he sits down, he's kind of interviewing him. He says, so what kind of degree are you working on in graduate school? He said, philosophy. I'm a philosophy major. And the dad goes, great. How you plan to market that? How are you going to get a job? And the guy says, I don't really have any plans for a job, but I think God will provide. And the dad went, really? Oh, Okay. Uh, so what are you going to do for a house? He said, I don't know, but I really believe God will provide. He said, okay, uh, uh, do you have any idea about how you can put food on the table and take care of my daughter? And he said, not really. Uh, I, I just think God will, will provide. And so the dad goes back to talk to his wife about it. And she says, how'd it go? He said, well, I got some bad news. I got some good news. He said, the bad news is this boy has no plans, no job, no home. But good news is he thinks I'm God. That's <laughs> you know what? We're not God. But the power to deal with all the complex relationships in our lives comes from God, friends. God is where the power comes from to love and to extend forgiveness to people in our family. We can forgive because we have been forgiven. We can love unconditionally because that's how God loves us. Man, we can be faithful unto death because that's how the Lord is with us. Never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you, saith the Lord. Never. Friends, all the power that we need to have great relationships comes to us from the God who knows how relationships work best. And so when you come to him, you come to where you can get help with your relationships. Father, thank you for this opportunity we've had to work our way through the teaching of your word. And Father, you have a standard that has built great marriages and great families for 5,000 years. And we read through the Bible and we see people violate those principles and their family goes sideways and terrible things happen. And, and we see people repent and, and bring things back in line with your word. And, and Lord, fruit and joy and, and promise and legacy are created. And I just pray, God, that that's what we'll see here at our church. That we'll see people maybe who come from the most dysfunctional, uh, hurtful backgrounds be the first shoot of that tree, that new family tree that's going to grow straight and strong and beautiful and fruitful and powerful and bring you glory. Lord, that's what we love about the gospel. We can always be the first to turn to you and experience your